All right, well, it is uh, it's so good to be with you this morning. My name is Matt Carter. I'm the pastor of preaching here at the Austin Stone, and uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We are, <coughs> we are going through the book of Matthew together, verse by verse. It's one of the Gospels where Matthew is writing to the Jewish people to talk to them about the fact that he, in fact, is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the one that's come to us to take away our sin. And so we're going to continue in the text today in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12. We're going to take a break next week. Uh, we're going to start what we call every year our vision series. And Tyler talked about that earlier. We're going to be looking at um, what it is that we are a church. What are we doing? What are we about? What's our purpose? What's our mission? And so that's going to start next week. You don't want to miss that. <clears throat> but today, one of the things that we're going to look at and realize is that in the book of Matthew, really in any of the gospels, when you see Jesus doing something, you realize that everything he does and everything he says, everywhere he goes, it has a purpose. There's meaning to it. He only had three years from the moment of his baptism that we looked at last week until his death and resurrection uh, for him to accomplish his earthly ministry. He only had three years. And so <clears throat> everything he does, the places he goes, the, the words that he says, they always have meaning. They always have a purpose. And so in today's text, we're gonna see Jesus do something that, that seems sort of innocuous. It seems um, like it really doesn't have a purpose. It seems kind of random. What he's gonna do is he's gonna leave his hometown of Nazareth. He's been baptized. His ministry's begun. He's gonna leave his hometown of Nazareth and he's gonna go to this city called Capernaum, which is right beside the Sea of Galilee. I've been there before. It's a cool place. And um, it's no big deal, right? It just goes from Nazareth to Capernaum. <clears throat> but what the scripture is gonna tell us, what Matthew's gonna tell us, is that he does that intentionally. And he does that intentionally in order to fulfill an 800-year-old prophecy from the prophet Isaiah, the book of Isaiah chapter 9. <clears throat> now, this, this prophecy that Isaiah gives us in Isaiah chapter 9, 800 years before Jesus rolls up on the scene, what he's going to say in that prophecy, and we'll read it here in a little while, what he says in that prophecy is that in the area of Galilee, there is going to be a great light that is gonna shine into a people and upon a people who are living their lives in darkness. That's the prophecy. In the area of Galilee, there's gonna be a great light that's gonna dawn on a people that are living their lives in darkness. And so two things we're gonna to see today. Number one, we're gonna learn what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. I mean, if you've grown up in church, you've heard that said a thousand times. Maybe you've never even understood what exactly it means. We're gonna learn that today. What does it mean? that Jesus calls himself the light of the world. And the second thing we'll learn is what does that mean for us? What are the implications for your life, for my life, for our future, that he is the light that shines into our darkness? And so let's read this together, Matthew chapter four, verse 12, all right? Um, this is Matthew speaking, he's writing here and he says, now when he heard that he, that's Jesus, when he heard that John, that's his cousin, had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. And so that, it says, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. In the verse 15, he quotes Isaiah 9. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a great light has dawned. 
All right, let's pray together real quick. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We thank you for its clarity. I thank you that it's living and it's active. And God, I pray that today your word by your spirit would change us. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so throughout the entire Bible, Throughout the entire Bible, one of the most utilized, hear this, one of the most utilized metaphors to describe Jesus' nature and to describe his purpose on this planet was that of light, was light. From the Old Testament prophets, when they were prophesying about the Messiah, to the New Testament gospel writers and to the New Testament uh, epistles, all of them point to this one kind of idea or this concept that Jesus, this coming Messiah, is the light. Now listen to how John, don't turn there, stay in Matthew, but listen to how John, the gospel writer, describes Jesus in chapter one of his gospel. In John chapter one, verse four, it says this. In him, talking about Jesus, in him was life and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He, talking about John, was not the light, but ta- came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming in the world. You get in the picture. Five out of six uh, verses, John refers to Jesus as this great light that shines this great light into the darkness of our lives. Now listen to how the Apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Listen to how he describes Jesus in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul said this, he said, For God, who said, let, sh- uh, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, right? So Paul spoke about the glory, the knowledge of the glory of God is seen in the light of the face of Jesus. And then even Jesus referred to himself as the light. In John chapter eight, verse 12, it said again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, let me stop right there and say this, that, excuse me, when you understand kind of when and where Jesus made that statement, you realize how profound of a statement it is. Jesus said, I am the light, and where and when he said it is kind of crazy. So in, in verse, or chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus makes the statement, I am the light of the world, and then look at John chapter eight, verse 20. Let's go ahead and bring it up. In John chapter eight, verse 20, John tells us when and where Jesus actually made this statement, and it's pretty, pretty nuts, kind of when and where he said it. <clears throat> look at John eight twenty. John says, these words he, Jesus, spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. And so Jesus says the light of the world, says he's the light of the world, and then a few verses later, John says, hey, Jesus said that, but the religious leaders didn't arrest him because basically he says God didn't let him do that yet. Okay, now here's the thing. Why in the world would the religious leaders of the day want to arrest Jesus because he said, I am the light of the world. Okay, now look at verse 20 one more time. It says, these words he spoke in the treasury 
as he taught in the temple. Okay, so Jesus made the declaration, I'm the light of the world, in this area of the temple in Jerusalem called the treasury. Another way that they talked about the treasury, it was the outer court. They also called it the, the court of women. All right, so that's where he said that, in the outer court. Now, when he said it was crucial. When he made that statement, John tells us later, was at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, why is that a big deal? And, and why did that make the religious leaders want to arrest Jesus? Well, during the Feast of Tabernacles, here's what they do. <clears throat> they would light all these candles, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, maybe thousands, all over the outer court of the temple. They would bring in these candelabra and they would just light all of these candles all over and day and night, these candles would shine. And especially at night, you could see them from miles and miles and miles away. So great was the light that you could see them from other towns, on other mountains, on other parts of the territory. And so um, that's kind of the idea uh, of this was they'd light these candles and what they do is when they saw that great light, it would remind them of the pillar of fire by night that used to lead the people of God in the desert when Moses was leading them in the desert. So those lights were meant to remind them of that time when God gave them a light at night to to lead and to guide them. And so at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would extinguish all the candles. All the candles would still be there but the light had gone out. And it was during this end of the Feast of Tabernacles after they had extinguished all the candles that Jesus rose up into the outer court, (coughs) into the treasury with all these extinguished candles and says, hey everybody, I need to tell you something. I need y'all to know something. I am the light of the world. And so can you imagine, can you imagine how offended and how shocked the leaders of the, uh, of the Jewish people, the, the leaders, uh, the religious leaders of the temple would have been where Jesus stands in the midst of all these extinguished candles and equates himself to the light that led the Israelites with Moses in the desert. That's why they wanted to arrest him. <clears throat> and in light of that, let me just say this. You know, we live in a, in a culture where more and more kind of increasingly, we see people, especially here in Austin, we see people embracing spirituality, but they reject the idea that Jesus was the son of God, or that Jesus was God in the flesh that came to redeem us of our sins. <clears throat> I talked to a buddy of mine the other day, he's a pastor, kind of in downtown Austin, and I said, man, tell me about what are people that live in downtown, what are they like? And he said, man, they're very open to spiritual conversations. <clears throat> he said, when I'm in a coffee shop, I'll all the time go and sit by people, talk to people, ask them if they wanna have a conversation about spiritual things. He said, 99 times out of 100, the answer will be yes. He said, but those same people that are very open to spirituality will be the exact same people that would reject this idea that Jesus was God in the flesh or that Jesus was God that came to earth to forgive us of our sins. And so what you increasingly hear people say is that Jesus was not the Messiah, he was not the son of God, but he was just simply another prophet. He was just a good moral teacher that came along and had some good things to say. But here's the thing you need to think about. If all Jesus was was this kind of sweet, good, nice, moral teacher, then why in the world were the religious leaders of the day wanting to arrest him and eventually kill him? Okay, the, the reason that the religious leaders were trying to arrest him 
is because he stood in front of everybody in the most holy place in all of Israel and he said, I am the light. He didn't say I'm a light. He said, I am the light of the entire world. Now church, that's a bold statement to make by Jesus Christ. Throughout the entirety of the scripture, Jesus over and over and over again is referred to as the light. Now, with that in mind, let's read again Matthew chapter four and let's look at it one more time and let's see if this starts making more sense to you as we talk about Christ being the light. Now, Matthew four twelve, it says, now when he heard, Jesus had heard that John was arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. The people in darkness have seen a great light for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death. On them a great light has dawned. And so 800 years Before Jesus shows up on the scene, the prophet Isaiah was making a prediction that there would be a people living in darkness. There would be a people living in the shadow of death, he says, but a great light was gonna shine upon him, them. Now listen, it's important to understand that Isaiah was not prophesying about the sun. He was not making a prediction about a physical or a literal light. He was talking about a person. 800 years before Jesus shows up, Isaiah was prophesying that a person would show up and be a great light. Very quickly, let's read it. Isaiah 9.1, let's go back to Isaiah, let's look at the original prophecy. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious by the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of Nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. So that's, that's the verses that Matthew quotes. Now listen, just a couple of verses later in Isaiah 9, in verse 6, watch what he says and see if this sounds familiar to you because he's pointing, he's pointing to the fact that this great light is not going to be a physical light, it's going to be a person. In verse 6, Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah says, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Does that sound familiar to you? Isaiah's talking about Christmas. Hundreds of years before Jesus shows up and begins his ministry, Isaiah prophesied that there would be a child that would be born to the Israelites, and this child would have a name. The name would be Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, and Mighty God. For crying out loud, Isaiah just said that there's gonna be a baby that was gonna be born and his name would be God, Mighty God. And this baby that was born, whose name Mighty God would grow up and he would be a great light to the people living in darkness. Isaiah was talking about a person. And so listen, this, this is the whole point of the book of Matthew. This is the whole point of the book of Matthew. Matthew is in this verse, kind of the kind of verse that we would just kind of read past because he's quoting the Old Testament. What Matthew is doing from the very beginning of his gospel is he's screaming from the rooftops that, hey, y'all remember 
Back in the day, 800 years ago, when Isaiah said a baby was gonna be born, whose name was God, who would be a great light to the people living in darkness, when Matthew was screaming from the rooftops, just, hey, everybody, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the one that's gonna shine a light into the darkness of our sin. Matthew's saying Jesus is the light of this world. Now, second part of this sermon, I wanna answer the question, what does that mean for you and for me? What, are that, what does that matter? What are the implications of the reality that Jesus Christ, this man that came to this planet that was born, whose name is mighty God, what are the implications of that reality that he is the light of the world? Where here's the answer. Now, when you became a Christian, for those of you who are believers here, I know not everybody is, but let me speak to you for a second. For those of you believers, in the moment that you became a Christian, something happened to you. Right? And, and we have all these different phrases and all these different names and all these different kind of concepts that, that speak to this moment where you became a Christian. One of them is salvation. You hear people when they're talking about the moment they were saved, they say, I was saved. I, I, I was saved at eight years old. I, became, I, I got saved at 16. I got saved at 24. And they're talking about that moment when they became a Christian. <clears throat> Another phrase you hear people talk about when the, describing their moment of salvation, they talk about being born again. Being born again, I was born again uh, at this event. I was born again at this age. It's a very biblical concept. Um, when, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he talked about that for you to enter the kingdom of God, you have to be born again. You're, given, you're, you're born again into a brand new spiritual life. Some people are more academic, and they describe that moment when they became a believer as justification. It's a fancy word that means you were declared not guilty in the sight of God. Is that when you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were covered with the grace of Jesus Christ, with the blood, literally, of Jesus Christ, so that when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the innocent blood of his son, and so you're declared not guilty in the sight of God. But here's the thing that I think in 21st century Christianity we kind of forget is that all these phrases and all these concepts can be summed up with what Matthew is speaking about right here. That the reason, the reason that Jesus came to this planet was to put on our flesh and to reach into our story and to transfer us out of darkness into his light. As a matter of fact, in the early Christians, the the earliest Christians, more than any other metaphor, that's what they talked about. When they were describing their salvation, they talked about, hey, I, I used to be in darkness, but now Jesus has stepped into my story and I've been transferred out of darkness and now I'm walking and living in the light of God. Now, here's the thing, to understand what it means to be transferred out of darkness into the light of Jesus, the first thing you have to understand is what it means that before Christ you were in darkness. To understand what it means to be transferred out of darkness, you gotta know what it means that before Christ you were in darkness, okay? Before your salvation, the Bible talks about this, before your salvation, the way the Bible describes your spiritual state over and over and over again is you being in one of darkness, okay? Now, to understand what that means, you gotta go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. And from the very beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, listen to this, don't miss this. God created Adam and Eve. He created the human race 
to have unhindered access, unhindered access to the glory and the presence and the love of God. Okay, that's why human beings were created. That's why you were created. So in the Garden of Eden, in the Garden of Eden, we could see God. In the Garden of Eden, we could talk to God. Without any veil, without any separation, we could talk to him. In the Garden of Eden, we could know God. We could comprehend God. In the Garden of Eden, we had this face-to-face fellowship, perfect relationship with him. And because God is light, the Bible says, in the Garden of Eden, before sin entered into the picture, we had complete and unhindered access to the light of the glory of God. But what happened? Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They chose to disobey God, and sin entered into the picture. Okay? And when that happened, the moment that sin entered the picture, they lost all of that. They lost the ability to talk to God. They lost the ability to see God. They lost the ability to know God. They lost the ability to be in perfect fellowship with God, which is why they were created in the first place. They lost the primary reason they were alive, okay? And so while, while they, they once lived in the light of the glory of God, now they lived in a, in a state of spiritual darkness, And that spiritual darkness didn't end with Adam and Eve. It didn't end with Adam and Eve. The Bible tells us in Romans that Adam and Eve passed down that sinful nature to every single human being that's ever lived. And so you need to understand that about yourself. The claim of the scripture is that you were born in a state of spiritual darkness. Every single one of us was born in a darkened spiritual state. Now, let's bring that kind of down now to you and to me. What does that mean? that you and I were born into this kind of darkened spiritual state, all right? There's a couple of implications of that. Number one, what that means, that you were born into darkness, is that you were born with darkened spiritual eyes. Everybody here, me, you, everybody, we were born with darkened spiritual eyes. Now, here's what that means. What that means is that you were not born with the natural understanding that the primary reason you were created was to be in relationship with God. You were born in this darkened place where you were not aware that the primary reason you're alive is to be in relationship with God, to live in that unhindered fellowship of the light. You were born darkened to that understanding. And that's the reason, because we were all born darkened to this understanding that we're created to be in fellowship with God. That's why most people spend their entire lives trying to fill some sort of void that they know is there, but they have absolutely no idea how to fill. That's the reason, because they weren't living for a while. They were created because they're living in darkness. You know, this, this kind of hits a lot of us that this void is in there, and we need something to fulfill it. It hits most of us about 16 years old. Because what happens when you're 15 years old? When you're 15 years old, you start thinking, you know what? Life is gonna get a whole lot better if I can just get my driver's license. Y'all remember that? You're tired of mama driving you around? You're tired of your your mom dropping you off at, at practice? 
And you think, man, if I can just get my driver's license, then that's when life is really gonna happen. That's when everything's gonna fall into place. That's when I'm really gonna start to live. But then one, one glorious day, you wake up and you're 16 years old and you go and you pass your driver's test and you start driving around. And about three days later, you get your first ticket. And it looks down and that sucker's $265. And your dad looks at you about three days after that and says, hey son, we need to have a conversation about you paying for insurance. And then it hits you that you gotta get a job. And then you realize that you gotta go fill that thing up with gas. And then your mom says you gotta pick up your little brother from football practice. And then you're 16 years old and you're like, man, this isn't everything I thought it was gonna be. This is, this is just life. And so then you think, okay, <clears throat> I know when life's really gonna start. It's gonna start when I'm 18. If I can just get out of my mom's house, if I can just get out of my dad's house and I can go to college, then that's when life's gonna begin. That's when everything's gonna fall into place. That's when I'm gonna experience this kind of thing that I've always wanted. Well, one day you wake up and you graduate from high school and you leave your parents and and you get on campus and and the next thing you know, you failed chemistry 101. And, And you're living on Taco Bell and ramen noodles. And you're like, man, this wasn't everything I thought it was gonna be. This isn't the life that I was kind of imagining. And so you think, okay, well, I know when life's gonna start. It'll start when I get married. It'll start when I get married and get a job and have a kid. And so you work real hard and you get out of college for this day that you thought life was gonna begin when you, when you get out of college and get a job and you get married. And one of the things you realize is once you get a job, you start having to pay taxes. And then once you get married, your wife starts yelling at you for leaving the socks outside of the hamper. And then once you have a kid, you wake up one day and that kid smeared peanut butter all over your drapes. You're like, man, this is just, this is not everything I thought it was gonna be, it's just life. And so while you're raising kids and cleaning up peanut butter off the drapes, you think, man, if I can just get to the place where my kids are out of my house and I'm in, um, I, I can retire and I can fill up my 401k and then that's when life's really gonna begin. But then one day your kids are out of the house and, and, and you retire and then you wake up one day and you gotta get bifocals and your knees uh, start hurting and, and you're, you're like, I'm just kind of waiting to die. And your whole life... Your whole life, you've been waiting for this thing to happen that never happens. Now, here's the thing. You know why that happens? It happens for this reason, because the primary reason that you were created was not to drive a car or have a job or get married or or retire. The primary reason that you're alive and you're breathing air and you're on this planet is to live in fellowship with the creator of the universe. But you're born darkened to that understanding. Listen to the, how the Apostle Paul talks about this phenomenon in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. It says, in their case, the God of this world, he's talking about Satan. He said, the God of this world blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. All of us are born darkened to this state that we're called to live in the light of the glory of God. And so what the Bible teaches us today, what the Bible is showing us today is for us to understand the truths of God, for us to walk in fellowship with God, which is why we're created, something has to happen. Your eyes, your spiritual eyes have to be opened. Have to be opened. Real quick, listen to what Jesus said to Paul. Paul is on the road to Damascus. He's not a believer. Jesus is gonna call, save him and call him into ministry. I want you to listen to the words that Jesus actually says to Paul about what he's doing and what he wants him to do. In Acts 26, 16, 
This is Jesus speaking to the unconverted Paul. He says, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Watch this. Here's, what, here's why I called him here. He said, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes. Jesus says, here's what I'm sending you to do. I'm changing your life. I'm wrecking you out for this reason. I need you to go to the people and I need you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to the light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of their sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what happens at your salvation. God opens your spiritual eyes. You're turned from the darkness into the light. And only then do you begin to live the life you were actually created by God to live. And that's in fellowship with him. And church, this, this is a real thing. I mean, I've seen this with my own. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in pretty much every genuine Christian that I've ever talked to. One of my favorite stories of salvation is um, Kevin Peck. Kevin serves as our lead pastor here at the Austin Stone. And um, his salvation story is really cool. He grew up in California and he grew up as an atheist. And by a really long story, he ended up in California at the Texas A&M, in the Texas A&M. And when he was at A&M and and his freshman year, he used to read the Bible all the time. And the purpose for his reading the Bible was to try to trip up other Christians. He wanted to know enough about the Bible that he could kind of trip up other believers. And now, before I go on and tell the story, I, w- I want you to know something about Kevin. If you've never met Kevin, Kevin Peck is brilliant. He's not smart, he's brilliant. And when Kevin was doing his doctoral thesis at seminary, he did it on church leadership development. That sounds pretty simple, right? Church leadership development. We're gonna develop leaders in the church. That sounds pretty simple. But he gave this thing, this, this doctoral thesis to me to kind of go over and read before he turned it in. And guys, I'm gonna tell you something. Look, I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I'm not brilliant, but I'm fairly smart. I got a doctor in front of my name, but I'm telling you before Jesus, I started reading this thing and I get about 10 pages in and I'm telling you before God, I have no idea what he's saying. No clue. And then I think, well, maybe it's not that I'm dumb and that he's brilliant, but then maybe he, he just said some dumb stuff and none of it makes any sense, but he gets like an A plus and his professors that are all brilliant are like, this is the greatest stuff we've ever read in the history of Christianity. This guy is absolutely stone cold brilliant, but he will tell you, if you ever hear his testimony, what Kevin will tell you is when he first started reading the Bible, it didn't make any sense to him. It absolutely no idea what it meant. And number one, it didn't make any sense to him. And number two, he thought it was the dumbest stuff he'd ever read in his entire life. He thought it was absolutely moronic. But then a short time later, this guy began to share his faith in Christ with him. This guy began to witness to him and tell him about Jesus. And so Kevin went home one night and he prayed this prayer. He said, God, if you'll change me, if you'll change me and you'll help me understand your word, I'll follow you the rest of my life. And Kevin said in that moment, he went and he picked up his Bible. And then for the very first time in all of his life, he understood it. But not only did he understand it, but Kevin said something radical had changed literally in the course of just a few minutes. Not only did he begin to understand it, 
but what was once moronic to him became the most life-giving and wonderful and unbelievable, amazing thing he'd ever read in his entire life. You see, what happened is that the words of the Bible are true. What happened is that God, in that moment, opened up his darkened spiritual eyes to see the light of Christ, okay? Almost done here, hang with me. Another implication of us being born into darkness is that we're born with darkened spiritual hearts. Darkened spiritual hearts. In John 3, 19, listen to how, rather John describes this concept of us being kind of born with darkened spiritual hearts. He says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. And so what John is saying here is that before God kind of steps into your story, your heart does not love the light. Before you're changed, before you're transferred by Jesus from darkness into light, you love the darkness of your sin. Your heart pursues darkness. Your heart loves darkness. Your heart coddles darkness. Your heart chases after darkness. It loves the darkness. But God steps into our story and what he does is he takes our darkened spiritual hearts and what he does is the scripture says he actually gives you a new heart. He takes that old heart of darkness, that old heart of stone, and he steps into your life. He gives you a brand new heart. In Ezekiel 36, 25, God himself is speaking. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And then in verse 26, God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put inside of you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. So one of the ways that you know that you've been transferred out of darkness and into the light is you've been given a new heart. One of the ways, church, that you know that Jesus has stepped into your store and you've transferred from, from the darkness into the light is that you no longer love the darkness. One of the primary ways that you know that you've been given a new heart is that your heart has now new desires. Listen, don't miss this. Being a Christian does not mean you're never gonna sin again. But what it does mean is that you're never gonna be okay with sin again. Why? Because God has transferred you from the darkness into the light. He's opened your spiritual eyes. He's given you a new heart. And so you may fall into sin, but you'll never be at home with sin ever again. And I've seen this in my own life, church. In my own life, church. Before God gave me a new heart, I'm telling you, before God gave me a new heart, before he opened my spiritual eyes, I was absolutely at home in my sin. Sin did not bother me at all. But now, after that's occurred, one of the best ways to describe for me what sin feels like when it occurs in my life, it feels foreign to me. It's one of the best ways I can describe it. When I fall into sin, I'm a human being, I fall into sin, when it happens, it just feels foreign to me now. It used to feel at home, now it feels foreign. I went on a trip this summer to Bolivia with Compassion International. They 
they flew me down there and I got to tour all these <clears throat> different facilities that they're working in. If you haven't sponsored a kid, by the way, you need to do that. They're, what they're doing is legit down there, Compassion International. But we went to Bolivia and we would go to all these different orphanages and places and, and we would go and they would serve a meal to us. And I've been on one of these trips before and I've gotten sick. <clears throat> and so I'd wanna ask them like, hey, you know, no, no offense here, but is this, you know, is this food cool? We're we gonna be okay. And, um, and, and they would always say to me basically, this food is gringo friendly. That's what they would say. It's gringo friendly. So if you don't, if you don't know any Spanish, gringo's white, white person. And, um, and they'd look at us in Spanish, they're like, it's gringo friendly. Well, I had to fly home earlier than the whole team. And so I went to the Bolivian airport all by myself. And I know just enough high school Spanish to be dangerous. And so I'm walking through the Bolivian airport. I gotta get through security. I finally get through security. Nobody speaks a lick of English in the Bolivian airport in La Paz. Nobody speaks English. I finally get through and it, it hits me, I'm hungry, right? But I'm in the Bolivian airport, which is in South America. And I don't wanna get sick because I gotta do some stuff the next week. And so I go up to this counter where they're selling food and, it, and I, it hits me like, I don't know how to say, is this food gringo friendly in Spanish? And so I pull out my Google translator and I type in, is this food gringo friendly in the Google translator? And it popped up this phrase, I don't, I don't exactly remember, it's like, esta comida, uh, gringa, uh, I'm a gobbler, something like that. And so I, I stood in front of these women that were selling these, these snacks and stuff. And I said, you know, as a comida, gringa, uh, I'm a goblin. And, all, and, and this girl that I said it to just starts dying laughing. She belly laughs. And I'm like, oh man, I said the wrong thing. And so she's like, she says in Spanish, like, what, what are you saying? And, and I said it again, da, 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 da. And, all, and, and she, she, she kind of, you know, gets all her buddies over there. She's in there, she's like, and so I, I said it again and they, oh, they all just die laughing. And she looks at me and she goes, no. <laughs> and so I walked off and I literally, I didn't, I didn't eat nothing until I got on the airplane three or four hours later. And so I'm texting a buddy of mine going, dude, what did I say? And he just died, you know, capital L-O-L, 12. And he goes, what you just said, is this food friendly for white girls? That's what you were saying. So I walked up to this counter and said, hey y'all, is this food friendly for white girls, right? And that's why they were laughing at me, but it kind of hit me. You know, look, <laughs> I'm not in Texas anymore. I, this is a foreign country. This is not my home. I don't belong here. This does not feel right to me. This does not feel comfortable to me. And so what, what I think the scripture is teaching us here is that when, when we're transferred from the darkness into the light, that happens in our soul. Is that the way that I felt when I landed into Texas the way that my body feels when I land in the great state of Texas is how your soul is gonna feel when you're walking in the light of Jesus Christ. And when you stop walking in the light of Jesus Christ, your soul that's been transferred from darkness into light is gonna go, hey, you don't belong here anymore. It's not your home. Now, <clears throat> the other thing that sin does is it feels contrary to my nature feels contrary to my nature. As I told you before, that when I would sin before Christ, it didn't bother me. If I, back in high school or my first semester of college, if I were to like go too far physically with a girl um, before Christ, it didn't bother me at all. I would go, I'd go brag to my buddies about it. But on a winter night in 1993, 
God gave me a new heart. He gave me a new heart. He opened my spiritual eyes. He transferred me from the darkness into light. And a really short time after that happened, I fell back for briefly just into that old sin pattern. And the best way to describe what happened after I sinned was what once would have caused me to brag to my friends now caused me to grieve. I grieved. Everything within me was crying out, that is not who you are anymore. And here's the thing, you can listen to Kevin Peck's story and you can listen to my story and you can chalk it up to some random psychological or physiological or cultural phenomenon. But for what it's worth to you, I'm convinced it's none of that. For what it's worth to you, in the absolute core of my being, I'm convinced, rather it being some cultural phenomenon that's occurring, I'm convinced that the words of the living God are true. When he said, but you, in 1 Peter 2, 9, he said, but you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people of God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, for those of you that are here that are non-believers, very briefly, I'm done. I just wanna speak to you very quickly. For those of you that are here that are not believers, maybe you, you came here today and, and you're probably wondering like, what, 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 is, what is this all about? <laughs> like, why are these people singing? Why are they raising their hands? Why would they come on the best morning of the week into a high school gym? What is this all about? Why are people even doing this? Here's what I want you to know. Jesus did not come to this planet to start a new religion. He did not come to this planet to start um, a new political party. Jesus didn't come to this planet to create a list of do's and don'ts that you better follow in order to please God. Jesus came to this planet because he loves you too much to let you live the rest of your life in the darkness of your sin. Jesus came to us to open our eyes. He came to us to give us a new heart so that you and I could live the life we were created by God to live. I love the way that the song, Oh Holy Night, says it. And I tried to get Aaron Ivey to sing Oh Holy Night in August. He refused, but he's too good for me to fire him. So, um, but listen to what this great worship song says. Long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and a glorious morn. That's what he's offering you today. A new and a glorious morn. Now I've been around long enough to know that there are people in the sound of my voice right now that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you have been transferred from the darkness into light but today you find yourself, you walked into this room and you're kind of living in the deeds of darkness. I wanna tell you that I can't think of a better 
today than today for you to step into the light, to step back into the light of Jesus Christ. That sin, it's not who you are anymore. That sin is not your home. It's a foreign country where you'll never feel at home there. Today, step back into the light. Step back into the light. There's life in the light. There's healing in the light. And more importantly than all that stuff, he is in the light. And he's waiting for you there. So let's pray. If you're here today and there's never been a time in your life where you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, where you've said to him, Father, I I am walking in the darkness of my sin, but I need you to open my eyes. I need you to transfer me from the darkness into the light. God, I need you to give me a new heart. If there's never been a time where you've done that, And just in the best way you know how, you do that today. Do it right now. And then you find somebody that's a believer and you talk to them about it. And you get plugged into a church that preaches the Bible where you can live in the light that you were created to live. If you're here and you're a Christian and you're walking in the deeds of darkness, God's calling you to come home. You will never find life in the faraway land of darkness. It does not exist. It's a mirage. Come home today. He's looking for you. He's waiting for you. Jesus, I love you so much. I love your story. I love what you did for us. What an incredible God you are. You don't sit up in heaven with your arms folded, shaking your head, telling us to get our stuff together. You pursue us, you run after us, you chase us. And you transfer us out of the darkness into your glorious light. Lord, I pray for those who are believers in here whose sins are forgiven. Pray for those new believers whose sins were just forgiven, who have been justified. I pray that we would worship you today with everything we are because you're worthy of our worship. Jesus, we love you. We praise you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Church, let's stand together. Let's worship him.